birds and rich folks flew right on by, but we got by, we got by. Good afternoon, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm David Ahrens, your host for this week's program. Regular listeners may have noticed that our usual intro of that cool jazz trio has changed. Instead, we heard a cut from Al Jarreau doing one of his best-known songs, We Got By. We're playing this cut because I'll be talking about Al Jarreau with the author of a new biography of the musician, and the author is Kurt Dietrich, and the book is Never Given Up, and it's published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Hey, Kurt, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Thanks for having me, Dave. I hope we have a great discussion. We'll be listening to some uh, great music by Al Jarreau. And thanks for discussing your book and your presentation today at the Madison Book Festival. But first, let me take a minute to introduce Kurt. Kurt Dietrich is an emeritus professor of music at Ripon College and the Chair of Performing Arts. He's written many articles and three books on jazz, including Wisconsin Riffs, Jazz Profiles from the Heartland. He has degrees from Lawrence, Northwestern, and UW-Madison, three great schools of music education and performance. Professor Dietrich plays trombone with a number of music groups around Wisconsin, and I understand he had some years as a traveling jazz musician. Great. So, this guy knows what he's talking about, so we've just established some, uh, some cred for those who are wondering whether he's just a professor. <laughs> he knows us, the music, too. So let, let me start at the beginning. Why did you want to write a book about Giroux? Well, I retired in the spring of 2019, just in time, I might yeah. add, before the <laughs> pandemic hit, but... Um, so I'd written a couple of other books, including one that never came out, and I just wanted a project to do in my retirement besides traveling and besides practicing every day, which I could never do when I was teaching. But I started thinking, where do I go? And uh, it was staring me right in the face, and I had written about Al Jarreau already a little bit for Wisconsin Riffs. But... It occurred to me that, as far as I knew, no one was writing about Al or had written any kind of book about him. So at that point, I went to uh, Joe Gordon, who was Al's manager for the last part of Al's career and who was still handling the uh, well, all of the legal issues with, with Al and his music, and... Uh, I had asked him about this. Is anybody writing about Al? And he didn't know anything, even though he keeps up the website and Facebook and all that kind of stuff that, you know, he hears from hundreds of fans every week. Um, and uh, he said, well, yeah, you can go ahead and do that if you want. But if you're going to and you want the cooperation of the family, you really need to talk to, to the head of the family, who at this point, is Rosemarie Freeman, who is Al's older sister. And so, as happenstance, um, she was making a visit to Milwaukee a month or two after that, and we arranged for me to meet her, and I talked with Rosemarie, and she and I hit it off at that get-together, and so there it was. But mm. again, you know, why Al Jarreau? Yeah. Because he was a great singer. And of course, I had the connection, having taught at Ripon College all those years. And years before that, Al Jarreau went to Ripon College and graduated from the college. And of course, is a legendary figure around there. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I assume there's also something about his music that was... If you, it would be hard to write a book about someone whose music you didn't love or appreciate deeply. There's no way I would do that. Yeah, Somebody else can do that. Mm -hmm. And um, 
really, my knowledge of Al's music when I started writing this book was fairly narrow. I knew his mid, his early 80s albums really well. And I sort of knew his late 70s albums. Um, I barely knew his albums after that. Um, but And there were many. Yeah, yeah, there were. Um, but, you know, I knew enough to know that this is music that I would be very happy to make a case for, and especially the albums that I had, you know, connected so meaningfully with in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of spread out from there. And it was really interesting to find out about the music that I didn't know about or I barely knew about. And a lot of a lot of the book and a lot of your interest probably is as someone who toured with jazz groups and have been part of the business was the whole process of human different people creating different kinds of music all with Al Jarreau as being the center of this right uh, long creative progression that went on for 30 40 years yeah, right an unusual duration for a popular musician he far by flyby and I thought he did have like most musicians a peak period, but then when that was over, he continued to produce and create. He did, and not only that, but he could have continued to do the same kind of music that made him popular. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the peak of popularity of that kind of music had passed, but he still could have made a decent living just singing the same kind of music and his hits and doing that same music over and over again, but that was not what he chose to do. Here's a very famous uh, one, and that was, interestingly, it was from after his first year as a recorded artist. This is Al Jarreau doing Take Five, what's known as Brubeck's song, Brubeck's composition, even though it's not. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Poor Paul Desmond. His band made it famous. <laughs> yeah. And Paul Desmond made plenty of money off it, so yeah. he probably wasn't okay. too hurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, here's Al. Sometimes, at times, if you, if the words and music, words and music get a little bit, words and music, words and music get a little bit mixed together, and you don't know what's quite what to say. Except that I want to tell about it. Is I used to visit this girl who lived not too far from me in Milwaukee. I was working in the breweries. And uh, uh, I go up and every. I mean, uh, every morning I would wa walk by her house and she'd be sitting on the front, sitting out on the gr out on the sitting on sewing. One morning I said, Hey, can I like to? That's early Jerome. We haven't even got to the tune yet. 
you stop and take a little time with me I'll just take five just take five I think one of the things that uh, you're losing by um, we're losing by just listening to it and not seeing the performance uh, that's on this uh, London concert is his physical expression which is very emotive shall we say what strikes me about also about this is that when I started the first time I saw this I thought how is this guy going to pull it together I mean he looks like and sort of sounds like someone who's doing word salads except he has complete control mm-hmm. over over it yeah. um, it doesn't have control over him but he he really moved away from this he did um, and even the version that's on the record, Look to the Rainbow, it's much tamer than this. The The intro isn't on there, and mm-hmm. he basically just starts the tune with the mm-hmm. sounds. And it's hard to know. They recorded every concert on that tour, and why did they choose the one that they did? Um, I think probably they wouldn't use one like what you just heard because it was too out. You know, they wanted to have something that's like, people are going to freak out if they hear this and go, what is going on here? So they had him do just, you know, a brief introduction and then get into the tune. Um, But then, of course, he improvises later on in it, and you get that sense of what he could do and what he did do as a jazz artist. But this recording, did you say that was from London? Because the one I know is from Hamburg, and it's very similar to that, if not the same. Oh, I I mean... Anyway, yeah, yeah, it's 1976, so he makes his first uh record in 75, yeah, and he's already right really storming through Europe, yeah, yeah. And and it wasn't till 77 that they did the recordings for um that next album, yeah. And uh, but yeah, whenever I hear that and when I see it on YouTube, it's just amazing, it is, Uh, yeah, it's someone who. As you said, 35 and really, I assume, at a peak of his control over his instrument, even though, as your book notes out, he'd been performing with his family and so on since he was 10 years old. Yeah, actually, it mentions in the book uh, where he sang for something when he was four. And uh, yeah, there was that concert that I talked about when he was 10 years old. He did make a record in Iowa. He was at the University of Iowa. Yeah, his when master's he was doing his, his degree work there. And uh, so that was made around 64, 65. It's kind of shady. And it's been put out 100 times under 100 different labels. None of them, you know, the real thing. And the Jeroa State hasn't seen a cent from any of those. Yeah. But he did record it in the studio in Moline. He's basically singing standards. You know, you go to a club to hear yeah. a guy sing tunes, uh-huh. you know, like the Great American Songbook. And that's what he does on that album. And it's real interesting to hear him then. And people would not have expected him to go from there to where he ended up musically. Yeah. The kinds of things he did. Obviously, he had the instrument. Um, it's a little higher then. And in his early days, and I don't know if there'll be anybody listening to this show that will remember Johnny Mathis. but. Yeah. He was compared to Johnny Mathis sure. frequently, and the sound of his voice was quite similar. Mm-hmm. And then, like everybody, as he aged, his voice mm-hmm. filled out and got richer and deeper and so forth. But to think that the Al Jarreau that everybody knows started when he was 35, that's that's different. You mentioned that when he was at Ripon, he organized a quartet of singers and a lot of the music that he was doing was from Lambert Hendricks and Ross, yeah. uh, which, for those of you who don't know, was a phenomenal British uh, trio, singing trio, that did very early, operated really as a full band almost, just the three voices. Well, Hendricks was American, of course. Yeah. Annie Ross was British. Right. Dave Lambert, he may have been, he's I think American he was too. British. Was well, he I don't whatever. Know. Yeah. But Hendricks was a mastermind, but he kind of was. He uh, wrote much of the music. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I think of them as British because the, a lot of the recordings were there, I guess, because well, of Annie Ross. But that was jazz. So he was doing it, and yeah. 
and knew it deeply if he was doing it when he was an undergraduate. Right. Yeah. But you mentioned that, and this is always startling to me, uh, reading bios of musicians, or is that he didn't read music. Yeah. I could see where some singers don't read music, but he has such a sophisticated tone. How, how could he do that? Well, that's a million-dollar question. What's really amazing to me is the depth of what he could hear because I say in the book uh, um, Larry Williams, who played keyboards with him on and off for years but was on the road with him for quite a few years in the 2000s, Al would sometimes at shows just say he'd start singing a song and he'd expect Larry to know the song. And it was songs that he didn't normally do. He had never recorded, but mm -hmm. songs he knew. And Larry said the impossible thing about this was if he wanted to teach Larry a song, Al could sing it, and he could sing all the notes in the chords. And so <laughs> Larry says, yeah, okay, so I hear the melody, but I don't know what the chords are. And so Al would sing right from the bottom up to the top of the chord. And Larry would say, and then next maybe this, and he'd say, yeah or no, and he would sing it. So he had this amazingly sophisticated harmonic sense, and that you don't associate so much with ear musicians. A melodic sense you do. And and there are others that, I mean, Wes Montgomery, the great mm -hmm. jazz guitarist, was another one who didn't read, and he wow. had a very sophisticated harmonic sense. But I don't think you really expect that from a singer. But yeah. Al had it. He certainly did. One of the other things that comes up in this, you know, sort of goes to his early beginnings and uh, as, a, as, a, as a produced singer and, and follows him throughout his career which you really detail in the book, is the the problem of, of labeling or not labeling Giroux. As you heard from uh, the, the first cut, he's a very accomplished jazz singer, but he also could do what's often derided as calling crooning songs or, you know, yeah. conventional presentations yeah. of songs, which uh, puts him in the... Uh, what we used to have of record bins of in the pop bin. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine, you know, record stores who were producers being frustrated at, what are we going to call this guy? Yeah. How did that affect his career? And Well, it certainly affected the beginning of his career because, you know, other musicians told me stories about people coming to hear Al Jarreau and saying, including the president of Atlantic Records, and saying, this guy's amazing, he's fantastic, but what would we do with him? They, they didn't know how to categorize him. And even that first album, um, you know, looking back on it, I don't think I would call that a jazz album. You know, if that album came no. out now, you'd say, well, this is a very sophisticated singer-songwriter. You know, that's a term we use these days to talk about somebody who does his own music or her own music, and that's what that music was. But as Al's uh, manager, Pat Raines, who was his manager for 20 years, pointed out, but everything he sings, he sings with a jazz sensibility. And so, you know, even crooning kind of ballads, he doesn't sing them in the way... It's not straight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Johnny Mathis. You know, he, he phrases them in a way yeah. that just a regular pop singer would never do. And so that evidently is how he got into the jazz bin. And then, you know... The and then won a jazz Grammy, which may have sort yeah. of consolidated that, um, right. yeah. that identity as, um, he's a jazz singer. Yeah. And later on in his life, he said, you know, I don't consider myself a jazz singer, but I'm flattered when people say I am, you know, and that I can do that. Um, but it's hard to say exactly what he was looking for in the early days, except to sing his own music a certain way. But uh. later on, he didn't want to be uh, limited by that kind of label, whether it was jazz or whether it was R&B or whether it was pop or so eventually he sort of embraced that but I'm sure it was incredibly frustrating early in his career why won't anybody sign me and 
then everybody loves me nobody signs me yeah exactly yeah he he was a relentless tourer wasn't he yes i mean from from yeah. the book it just seems that absolutely went through everywhere and and because of his popularity in Europe, which then spread even further than that, I mean, one of the pictures at the end is Al touring in Kiev and other stand states in Eastern Soviet Union, yeah. as well as all the capitals and, you know, the, a lot of the, the uh, tapes that we have are from London, Hamburg, but especially Montreux Jazz Festival. Yeah. He was a regular there, and as well as the United States. He was more famous, really, in Europe than in the U.S., would you say that? I would say that's possible. Not mm -hmm. having ever lived, well, mm -hmm. except when I was seven years old, never <laughs> having lived in Europe, mm -hmm. I can't say that with any certainty, but that's that definitely is my impression, that mm -hmm. he was at least as famous there as here, if not more. I mean, it's partly the two music cultures are a little bit different, but he was definitely a big star. Yeah, it seemed that he was, you know, getting three or four thousand people at a date here, but could go to London yeah. and, you know, maybe once in a while do Wembley Stadium, yeah. but do really major, major concerts there uh, pretty reliably. Right. Uh, one of the other really striking things about Jerome um, is his, it's an overused word, and his spiritual message. And when you watch some of the tapes, uh, he he's talking about his love for the audience and the importance of love. And sometimes it seems like, well, that's just canned yeah. patter that you hear from the most miserable yeah. <laughs> in the world will come out and be all, you know, hearts and flowers and so on. For Giroux, there's a lot more to it. When I first started talking with people, about Al Jarreau, and I guess I had already committed to doing the book, but um, several of them, and now I'm talking musicians who worked with him, and musicians tended to work with him for a long time. That's always a good sign. Yeah, it is. Uh -huh. And uh, But it was also people who had just spent, well, for example, today, um, when we did this talk here in Madison, Tim Shade was here, and Tim Shade used to lead the Wisconsin School Music Association, and it was through him and the Wisconsin Foundation for School Music that uh, Al had this big award ceremony um, in the fall of 2016. So Tim kind of coordinated all this through those organizations, and he spent days with Al. And Steve Doble, who works over at the radio station at our public TV here, spent days with him also. And both of these guys, for example, besides the musicians who were with Al all the time, they said, this guy is the real thing. He's for real. His... By which they meant, there's nothing phony about this stuff that he's he's saying. The love. Yeah. The love. Yeah. Let me just, um, he said in one interview, and I don't remember the context, Proper thought is prayer, and prayer is proper thought. That's someone who's thought about this yeah. life and his spiritual life pretty deeply. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's something about he wanted his music to be a chapel, yeah, to build a chapel somehow right. with the music, not a physical one, but to, right. to build one where people can reside in, in this state of, his bliss, yeah. <laughs> really, sometimes, because when you watch his performance, and I I really recommend people to watch um, a YouTube video of him doing the song Morning. Hmm. Yeah. And um, it's old, it looks archaic, but the striking thing about it is he really looks like he's in a state of bliss yeah. Yeah. Um, singing, and that he is in this magical natural world that he's celebrating. It's, it's, um, uh, it's worth it. Uh, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, well, this is a bunch of Sesame Street, blah, blah, yeah. you know. And then I said, well, let that go. Let the cynicism go. I watched it again, and just today I watched it 
a third time, and it really becomes more more touching, and you realize that the guy is not acting. Yeah. Um, and that musical climax that is where I cut it off today mm-hmm. is when he says, "In reaching to touch the face of God," and it's like, "Whoa!" And you know, he's and they, you know, this was perfect for the song where he's going up to this. He just keeps ascending and going up to this high note, and they show him in the video, and he's out in the sky, you know, and it's corny, but it's not corny either, <laughs> right? You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, you could be transported by this. Yeah, as he, as he was, and you could see that in, um, not in all of the music, of course, but no. in many other tapes that are videos that are frequently seen. You see a guy who is, who is letting go. <laughs> he is definitely letting go. It's it's quite a. Um, a and he found ways of uh, relating his songs to things that you might not think of too i mean one of his uh sort of minor hits from that that same era it was boogie down and it sounds just like what the title sounds like a a a dance song and it is a dance song but especially later in his life he referred to this song and said you know what you have to do as a person is get is find what it is that you do and get your boogie on, which is part of the yeah. words of yeah. that. And so he was able to make that song much more than just let's get out on the dance floor and have a great time. Let me play uh, just to get another sense of of Giroux's, um This is, I think, his one of his big hits. I don't know where on the charts and so on, uh, but it's. It's it's not his improvisational work, but his uh, important work, and it's we're in this love together. Interesting. I've got quite a bit of backstory about this in the mm-hmm. book. By the time he made this record, they were getting solicited by all kinds of songwriters with their songs. And it's like, Al, you should do this song. And uh, one of the people close to him, Jerry Levin, he heard this on cassette. He said every week we'd have like a garbage bag full of cassette tapes <laughs> of, of songs that people were pitching. Uh-huh. And he said, I listened to it, and right away I said, that's great. That's perfect for Al. And he took it to one place, and a, two or three of the other people who were around Al, including Tom Canning, who was his uh, music director at that time, he said, he said, that's a piece of whatever. Mm-hmm. It's no good. It's garbage, you know. And it's interesting because it was written by a couple of guys in Nashville. You know, it was like a country song where they got it. <laughs> But then Jay Graydon, who was producing his albums at that time, he said, it's going to be a hit. But even afterwards, Jay said, 
that's like the most milquetoast tune on the whole album, but it's a hit. And, you know, the way Al Jarreau sold this song, that was the biggest hit he ever had. And, you know, strictly in musical terms, it's not just the greatest song he ever make sang. Make chords. Let's just go through That's right. But, <laughs> but people just loved it. That was on the first album that he had, that, and maybe the only one that actually went platinum mm-hmm. was on that album, basically on the strength of that single. Yeah. When you say uh, his music director, could you talk a bit about what this singer's music director would be? Yeah. So in this case, we're talking about the person who goes out on the road with him and basically runs the shows in terms of, okay, this is what we're going to do. He he. He may or may not, he certainly would have a big uh, part of hiring the musicians who are going to play on tour. But, you know, he's in charge of the music. And it's like, okay. In charge of the music means he's directing the band. Yeah, and, essentially. And sees how Al, how they fit in with Al. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what ends up happening with a person like Al and with the kind of professionals that he always toured with you know, the music director doesn't have to do a whole lot after the first week except play. And Tom Canning was that guy. He was the piano player. But, you know, when they're learning the tunes, when they're rehearsing, when they're thinking about how do we fit them together, although eventually I think Al was pretty much calling the sets. Okay, let's start with this. Mm -hmm. Let's do that and so forth. Um, But the music director, yeah, is just holding the band together. And, you know, let's do this. Oh, we got a little too much happening there and so forth. Al would certainly have a lot of uh, input into those kinds of decisions, too. That's what we're talking about. And Al's last... One of the things that, you know, and this always comes up with with a black musician, and it's not, of course, ever mentioned for a white musician, which is how does he represent the race? And that Giroux was not outspoken politically at all and then such seen as someone who had an interracial crowd um, that he would at one performance he looks out at the crowd and and says hey we got the united nations here with us tonight uh, because there was such a multiracial crowd there and he, he sort of had a something that reached everyone and but going through his music i i found uh this one number called You Don't See Me, yeah, which I thought it's... I I actually should have made more of that. It sort of belied the notion of him being this race-neutral, race, not just race-neutral, but that he was a black man who was oblivious (laughs) to the race world that he lived in. A guy who went to Ripon College in the early 60s um, and and Iowa and so on. Yeah, that he, he... did not want to live that life and that he was talking about it. When I was walking, patting my feet on the pavement, really, truly trying to find me a gig. Well, did you stand up and speak out in my favor? Cold desperation. She's a devil in bed, scratching till my bones are bare. Pills and needles are all I've left to save her. No, you don't see. Me. It has a good to me that you don't to see 
and they huh? Like you do, don't wanna see they and that's a good lead that you do the see they huh? Like you do, don't wanna see they and that's a good lead that you do see me that you don't don't wanna see me and has a certainly that you don't see me He says in this little mumbling thing right before he goes into the second part of the song, now why doesn't he do the other stuff? Do your real routine, Al. We don't want to... Uh, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> I've never heard that version of it where oh. he sings slow with the just, you know, the background's just floating. That is not on the album. Uh-huh. And so you don't hear the words nearly the way you do in the funk part, you uh-huh. know, which is where the, where the tune starts on that album. And he recorded that tune a couple of more times. Yeah. And the same thing, it always just started with don't, don't, da, don't, you see me. And the words are much more stark in that introduction that you just played me, which, like I said, I've never heard. And um, so I, as a musician, I just kind of got caught up in all the funkiness of this tune without paying as much attention as I should have to what he was talking about. And it was only after somebody called my attention to this, it's like, you know, that's pretty dark. And, you know, he's he's got something real to say in that song. I mean, I guess because of his, really his spiritual center, I mean, the main thing that he wanted to get out there was his love and compassion and kindness message. And it was not going to be, I'm angry right. and let's get into some kind of fight about this. Yeah. It's yeah. just that... That wasn't him. I, I think that's correct. And I'm not going to say that he was trying to hang on to as much of the audience as he could, but he may have been purposely doing that because he felt like this is how I can reach the most people. And who knows? I mean, he never talked about it that yeah. way. Yeah, that song, that song is pretty deep. Yeah, he, he you know, the record that you establish in the, in the book, he was not, quote, political. And uh, for a jazz musician who's touring around the world, you know, for 35 years or whatever, and just part of that life, you know, understand where he doesn't get into Democrats and Republicans. And plus, he had the that spiritual center. And only, I think, very late in his life, you quote something where he says something about Trump. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, that that was yeah. just, you know, it was right before he died. It was yeah. just something that was unavoidable about this um, uh, thing that was going to happen or that was happening in the country. And, and one other thing I, I would tell you, David, just a little bit of a story. So I was at this award event in um, Milwaukee in the fall of 2016 where Al was presented with this Lifetime Achievement Award and, uh, you know, the kids from Milwaukee High School of the Arts played and sang and the mayor talked and, you know, there was all this hoopla and it was, it was really great. Al did not sing then at all, but he did give a little speech and I don't know how much of it was scripted. I think I have seen that he just had a few little notes, you know, scratched out to himself. But he was talking, as usual, I quote a little bit of it mm-hmm. in, the, in the book where he was talking about how much he loved teachers, you know, because there were a lot of <laughs> teachers there. Um, but he also talked in sort of vague terms, but everybody there could tell what he was talking about, about how to make the world better and what we owe to one another. And we really need to do this and we need to look out for each other and so forth. And I was there with two of my students from Riffin College, and this was, of course, just before the election was about to happen. And I got outside and I said, 
okay, could we elect Al Jarreau president? This is what we need to be thinking about. Yeah. And again, he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say anything about politics. He just talked about life and, you know, people and what we owe to one another and how we need to look out for one another. And it was really inspiring. Let, let me ask you to read um, his sense of himself that he describes in um, a uh, documentary that was made of him, a French documentary that was probably aired all over Europe, where he, how he opens up and answers the question, who's Al Jarreau? My name is Al Jarreau. I'm from Milwaukee. I sing jazz, and I sing pop, and I sing R&B, and sometimes I mix the things, and they come out sounding like Al Jarreau from Milwaukee. It may be understand that or even expect it in the little half-hour documentary, which is really well done, by the way, that uh, Wisconsin Public TV made of coming home. You, you could maybe expect that, and he would talk about Milwaukee. But this was for a documentary that was made in France. Yeah. It wasn't for the folks back home. It yeah. was for whoever might see it. This is who I am. And people of France said, what's Milwaukee? Let me, and and uh, it's funny, too, that I, I think I say this, that you know I saw one of his uh, last performances on his last tour when he was touring with one of the great big bands in Europe, and he was uh, playing all the places he normally played, but he was playing in Monte Carlo, and he started talking about Ripon College. I know you all know about this little college in Wisconsin, and probably there wasn't a person in the room that did outside of his band, but, uh, but it was funny that he did that. And I have a friend in Seattle who saw Al numerous times out there, and he said, Al always said, is there anybody out there from Ripon and or from Milwaukee? And he just did this because he felt this connection to Wisconsin. I mean, Al sort of, uh, sort of breaks the stereotype. His background. I mean, it's it, he, even though um, his great song is, you know, "We Got By," is that he really came from a very solid working class family of how many brothers and sisters? Six, six, six kids and parents who stayed together and loved him. His father was a Minister he was a minister, right. although he had left the church by the time Al was a very young mm -hmm. kid. But he was an never, industrial worker. Yeah, yeah and so mm -hmm. he got a job as a welder at mm -hmm. A.O. Smith after that. Um, but, um, you know, so there was that strong religious undercurrent there. But then there was this thing where it's like, no, this isn't working. But the family was very close, and it was solid you know, sort of an ideal family from the 50s. Yeah, it was really Ozzy and Harriet kind of. Yeah. But one of the anecdotes in there is really striking, which is um, when he was going to high school or something, he there was a kid on the block who was disabled in, in a wheelchair, and that every day he and his brother would go up to the third floor and carry this kid down the stairs. Yeah, and I, I don't know how they exactly, they got drafted for this job, but they walked by there every day to school, and this kid's mother found them and said, yeah. hey, can you give us a hand? And they and he did, did it, it every once, day for and years. then they did it. And amazing. then becomes a rehabilitation counselor, and that the reason why he left being a rehabilitation counselor is that he was so bad at the paperwork right. that they couldn't keep him. Really good at being a counselor, yeah. but it was the damn forms. Yeah. He always seemed to be caught by these kinds of cross currents. And I want to read a, uh, a critic's sort of retrospective, in a way, of, of Al. And as you say in the book here, he proved impossible to pigeonhole. Yeah, so this critic, Maurice Bottomley, Al Jarreau is going to be as important as Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, or Stevie Wonder. At least that was the way he was talked about in 1975 when his debut album, We Got By, was, re was released. It didn't quite turn out that way, and Giroux very sensibly opted instead for a career of slightly less ambition, but one of great longevity and industry acceptance. Grammy Awards in various categories came his way and remained a favorite on playlists. This is something, again, um, deals with some of the, the 
inherent race issues um, for uh, a black artist. And he goes on to say, as to the jazz soul thing, Giroux is almost as much Johnny Mathis as John Hendricks from Langer Hendricks and Ross. And he was never, but he was never a soul man in any conventional sense. I see Giroux as a vocal stylist with specific mannerisms and definite jazz influences whose interests were always in the shape, what was always in the shaping and crafting of popular songs. Giroux is in the tradition that includes Billy Eckstein, George Benson, and Walter Jackson, black performers who had an instantly recognizable sound, but who were never 100% jazz, soul, R&B, or whatever. Thus, they get dismissed as pop. While Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, who did as much jazz, could just move on. I thought that was pretty insightful. I thought he just really captured that dilemma of of a black musician yeah. at that time. I mean, I can imagine the same dilemma being faced by... Did Giroux talk about that as a dilemma that he faced? He never talked about it in those racial terms. Mm -hmm. And in the terms that I'm always working this line between pop and jazz and jazz can't fall too much into one category or not yeah, the other. Well, he, he didn't put it exactly that way, but he did say, essentially, I'm you know, not quoting him by any means, but I don't want to do just one thing. I want to do these other things. And I want to do this album that's got a lot of R&B kind of feel in it. And this album's jazzier. And this album's poppier. This one's got a little bit more rock in. He was driving his record companies crazy. So what were his last years? What what were they about? Um, I mean, he was he performed till in his in the seventies. Yeah, he he was he was doing it right up till the end. Practically, his last tour was after he was in Milwaukee in the fall of two thousand sixteen. He went to Europe and did this tour with the big band, and he was singing at that time. I may get this turned around. I've got too many facts in my head, and I can't keep them all straight. Yeah. But I think that was when he was doing Ellington songs with the big band. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, he kept on going, and he would have kept on going. As far as recording goes, you know, his last few records, one of them was with the uh, Metropole Orchestra over the Netherlands, another of the great European bands, and that was sort of a greatest hits thing. But then he did an album after his friend George Duke died. Um, he did an album of all George Duke tunes. And those are kind of in the same area that we don't know what to call it, you know, pop, soul, jazzy kind of tunes. And it was a really terrific album. They were supposed to do an album of this Ellington stuff. And I believe that they had pretty much cut that album. But when he died, the legal issues were too great to overcome <laughs> because the German band is a government organization, you know, so there was all that whole thing. Even then, he was going from one place to another to another. When he was doing a regular tour, quote, regular, you know, he'd do a lot of the tunes that everybody knew, but he wouldn't do just that. You know, he kept doing these different things. So he died in... 2017. 2017. Yeah, early. In Play one last tune here. Um, Love and love, I should. Dreaming, I got somebody. 
daddy that he can make love to And let me say I want to stay Girl up to the end So I'ma kiss your eyes Cast away the trouble to the wind When I love you for my life Let me take you for my wife So we've been talking to uh, Kurt Dietrich, who's uh, the author of Never Given Up, The Life and Music of Al Jarreau. It's published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. It's, it's out this year. It's uh, the only uh, biography of Jarreau. And uh, I think he's somebody who uh, will have a life that goes on for a very, very long time. Not huge popular but I think I sure hope so. uh, for people who are listening to this or listening to a lot of his stuff this is a pretty unique performer artist that we've had uh, in this country and I want to thank you very much Kurt for spending Thanks, the hour David, with us. Thanks for having me. I, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah and thank you Al Jarreau. Yeah no oh, kidding. All right. And you've been listening to a Madison Book Pete on WORT-FM. Uh, I want to thank our producer and the uh, news director, uh, Sholly Pickman, for helping out on this day. Let me listen to your heartbeat.